Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Massick. Hello, Jason. Wait a minute. Who am I here? Jerry. That's right. Jerry Blake. Thanks, honey. That's right, listeners. We are discussing with spoilers aplenty the 1987 horror thriller, The Stepfather, from the Incorporated Television Company, starring Terry O'Quinn, Jill Sholin, and Shelley Hack. Directed by Joseph Rubin, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 29 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Daddy's home, and he's not very happy. For Henry Morrison, Terry O'Quinn, the American dream is everything. A beautiful home, a loving wife, and adoring children. But his family disappointed him. So early one morning, he killed them. No one caught him. He simply vanished. Only to begin again. Now he's Jerry Blake, a real estate salesman living in a beautiful home with his loving wife, Shelley Hack, and charming daughter, Jill Shoelin. Everything's in place, except his new daughter doesn't like him. She's standing in the way of his American dream. She's disappointing him. The stepfather. So that was what's on the box. Jason, how we doing? Yeah. Pretty good, pretty good, man. That one was short and sweet. I kind of liked it. And I have to say, man, I was uh, strangely excited to watch this again. It'd been a while, so I'm ready to get into yeah, it. Same. This uh, cult classic horror psychological slash slasher film from 1987. Yes, yeah, so let's move on to our earliest memories. What are our earliest memories of the stepfather? Jason, start us off. Thanks, man. And as I just said, I haven't watched this film in decades. Yeah, such a weird thing. It's obviously a horror movie, so it's not a movie about a pleasant topic. And I wasn't a diehard horror fan as a kid, but I watched it all the time because it was on cable all the time, as I recall. As were, you know, so many of our cult 80s favorites. So it definitely had its run on cable. Now... I wonder what was the draw for me, because I really don't have that many early memories. The only memory is that I saw it several times, but man, it's just been too long. So yeah, what was the draw for me? Why did I watch it so many times? Was it a morbid curiosity? Was it the mystery? Was it Terry O'Quinn's performance? Was it the seed that was planted for my future fandom of true crime drama? Yeah, I have to admit, I am a fan. So anyway... All that I remember is Terry O'Quinn, a wonderful actor. This is probably my earliest memory of him as an actor. And otherwise, yeah, not much else except that he was a bad dude in this movie. I mean, that's it, Bill Bant. I look at the VHS box and the images jog my memory slightly, but I got nothing else. However, I had no doubt that rewatching the movie today would bring it all back. And now I'm just going to pass it right over to you, Bill Bant. What are your earliest memories of the stepfather? Jason, I can probably just repeat what you just said because it's almost exactly the same. This was a late night cable watch in the early 90s, and it was on all the time. That and the sequels. 
and I would initially watch them the first time and then just watch bits and pieces here when I was in between other shows and I go to commercial. I'm like, oh, let's see what point it is in the stepfather or stepfather two or stepfather three, whatever it was. Like you, I had no idea who Terry O'Quinn was. And I mean, you could really put him in the, hey, it's that actor category until his breakout yeah. role of John Locke in Lost 17 years later, 17 years after this movie came out. Right. I really just remembered going into this that he killed families and changed identities. So pretty excited to get back into this and uh, see what this movie was all about. And I figured, hey, you know, Father's Day is coming up. This should be an appropriate film to uh, discuss. So appropriate. So appropriate. Well done. Great scheduling as always. And I'm glad that uh, you brought up the fact that Stepfather 2 and 3, the sequels, were also on repeat on cable. Because now I'm second-guessing myself. I thought I had watched The Stepfather over and over, but maybe it was one of the sequels. I need to revisit Stepfather 2 at the very least. It may have been Stepfather 2 that I watched well, you know who's the most in for whatever reason. Stepfather 2. Besides Terry O'Quinn. Yes, besides Terry O'Quinn. Meg Foster, our favorite baddie from They Live. Oh, yeah, sure. Ice Cold Blue Eyes. Yep. And Jonathan Brandis. Oh, wow. Okay. And either way, we're talking about the original Stepfather. Are you ready to get into some initial thoughts, Bill? Yeah, Matt? let's do it. Initial thoughts. What do you got? Well, let's start with the man, Terry O'Quinn, playing the titular role as the Stepfather, a.k.a. Jerry Blake, slash Henry Morrison, slash Bill Hodgkins. So, real quick, here's his 80s snapshot. He was in Heaven's Gate, All the Right Moves, Places in the Heart, and also... One episode of Miami Vice entitled Give a Little, Take a Little. Oh, yeah. From 1984, he played the role of Richard Kane. That's right. He was then in Silver Bullet, Space Camp, The Stepfather here in 87, Black Widow. I'd forgotten about that one. Young Guns, of course, in 88, Blind Fury, and then Stepfather 2 in 89. Some of his other notable roles would be as Major John Clum in Tombstone. He played the role of Peter Watts on 41 episodes of the show Millennium. I remember liking that show. That was also by creator uh, Chris Carter, right, of X-Files? Correct. And that was from 96 to 99. And then, of course, as Bill Bant mentioned, his most notable role as John Locke on 120 episodes of the classic television series Lost from 2004 to 2010. Yes, sir. Terry O'Quinn is a great character actor with a very recognizable face, usually playing an authority figure, a mentor with a lot of wisdom or a gentle soul that could turn on a dime to deadly serious. Terry O'Quinn is originally from Michigan. He's one of 11 siblings. Terry O'Quinn is 70 years old today and still going strong. Hey, Bill Bant, here's an initial thought. I paused the movie less than 20 seconds in because I absolutely love the old film stock look. I'm watching the opening credits and it's like the film stock is like shaking ever so slightly on the screen. It was like as if I was in the movie theater watching the film through an old school film reel projector. Uh, it was great. I just wanted to mention that. Not to mention there's some really cheesy horror music behind the opening title credits. Good stuff. Funny enough, man, as I watch The Stepfather or a.k.a. Henry Morrison at this point. That's his character's name at this, in the very beginning, the cold open of this film, as he's getting cleaned up after committing a brutal multiple murder. All I can think about is any evidence he may leave behind. This is a result of way, you know watching way too much CSI over the years and listening to way too many true crime drama podcasts 
and or watching too much Dateline. That's just the way it is now. I have to remind myself that this is just a movie and they have to keep the story going and just to watch it and go with it instead of analyzing like, how's he going to get with, away with this? Is he doing everything right? Is he cleaning the crime scene properly? Is, you know, Did he wipe for fingerprints, etc.? It's just ridiculous how I look at things with that analytical eye now as a result of watching too many of these forensic crime shows. But hey, wow, wow, wow. What a fantastic opening. Uh, yeah, just a great cold open to this film. And it begs the question, this is one of my yeah major initial thoughts was, how many times have I driven down a seemingly peaceful street not knowing what horrific acts might be occurring at that very moment behind the closed doors of the pristine houses lining that very street? It's just kind of creepy to think of it that way or think about that. Don't want to think about that. Terry O'Quinn is phenomenal. He's great, man. He has a very natural delivery. He's an excellent actor. He can be warm in one moment and stone cold the very next. He has that great dead eye stare with the intense laser focus. It can be riveting and very scary. There are some nice subtleties in his performance in this film. He doesn't give too much away, but when he either mumbles to himself or it might be an eyebrow raise while eating dinner at the table, we can see as an audience that there's something off with this character. He knows exactly how much to show us in exactly which moments. It's not an easy balance for an actor portraying a character with a dark side that he is purposefully hiding or hiding due to a previous trauma or a mental disorder because the actor knows the audience must see something. But at the same time, the other characters performing with him are also seeing something and playing off of that. So if the actor gives away too much or plays it over the top, the audience doesn't believe it. The suspension of disbelief goes out the window. And the other characters would see exactly what he's doing. So it would just be way too obvious. But if he plays it too subtle, then the audience doesn't believe he's a bad guy at all. So he's got to walk a fine line, I think, especially in a movie like this that can be looked at as camp. But he plays it pretty straight and pretty convincing. Terry O'Quinn, wonderful. Uh, love the fact that our stepfather, Terry O'Quinn, walks around whistling Camp Town Races because it's his signature calling card. It's just a nice and creepy touch to the character. And you know what it reminded me of, Bill Bant, was uh, the old man from Poltergeist 2. And what was what was that song he would sing, Bill Bant? Can you, can you do a quick little impersonation of the old man from Poltergeist 2 for us, please? Hey, little girl, are you lost? Do you want me to sing a song? God is in his holy temple. God is in. <laughs> yes. Uh, when a bad guy, a creepy character villain, uh, has a signature song or whistling tune, it's just a great touch. Love it. Always love it. By the way, speaking of Camptown Races, have you read the actual lyrics of the original song written by Stephen Foster? It's in old English. Like the, even the title of the song is in old English. It reads, if you were to pronounce it as it looks, it reads, Gwine to Rune All Night, D or Day Camptown Races. But I think we just kind of modernized it, like as we were saying it as kids, meaning uh, going to run all night, Camp Town races. And uh, it's just funny. Looking at the old school lyrics written by Stephen Foster, it's, sometimes, it's almost ineligible. But anyway, hey, man, here's an initial thought. I'm a sucker for good disguises. I just love good disguises for good guys or bad guys. In this instance, a bad guy. But for instance, we talked about Rutger Hauer in the beginning of Nighthawks, how he was unrecognizable. I just like watching a character go through the process of donning a disguise or removing the disguise. It's detail-oriented and tedious and meticulous, and it has to be perfect. 
So I appreciate that you get to see Terry O'Quinn do it a couple of times in this as he's just going through his routine, his process. He's a sick individual, and that's just part of his method of operation. Overall initial thoughts, Bill Bant, this is a pretty decent psychological slasher film. You know, it's good. It didn't blow me away, but it's got a tight running time of just under an hour and a half, and I'm engaged the whole way through. It's Terry O'Quinn's movie. He shines, and honestly, the other performances are serviceable and average, and it doesn't really matter because Terry O'Quinn is the one you want to watch. I can see why it became a cult classic, because it's a decent, creepy movie. You get a couple good kills with some decent blood. You want to know how this guy is getting away with being a mass murderer, basically hiding in plain sight. And will he get caught? It kind of makes you think. And like I said, you know, you go down these quiet, little, small, rustic towns and you wonder what's going on behind the scenes. Again, not a healthy way to think, but uh, I was in for the ride. I was along for the ride. So I enjoyed this revisit. How about you, Bill Bant? Initial thoughts? Jason, yeah, some great initial thoughts. I had about 60 questions about some of the stuff that you were bringing up, but hopefully we'll get to it at some point. Yeah, so I have not seen this movie in at least 30 years, 25 years. And even though Terry O'Quinn starred in one of my favorite TV shows of all time, Lost, as we brought up, every time I see him, I think of this movie first. This is the, this is the movie I associate uh-huh. him with. I don't know why. I can't explain it. And even when you were rattling off his film biography, when I went to look it up, I, I was like, oh, my God, he was in this. Oh, my God, he was in this. Oh, I forgot he was in this. It was amazing how much he's done. But I yeah. didn't know, I just didn't remember in half of it, but because of Lost, he's just now the shit. I think the biggest surprise for me re-watching this movie was that you kind of go in thinking it's a slasher movie, but we only see the stepfather character kill two people. Yes, Correct. we are shown the results of what happens to the previous family, but he is not on a mad murderous spree throughout this movie. He only kills those that get in the way of what he wants. And what he wants is the perfect family. He seems like a normal, well-liked human being, which we see throughout. You know, he throws a barbecue for the neighbors and seems to treat his wife well. And even he's trying to build a relationship with his stepdaughter and try to help her out with her issues. But he has a trigger. And that trigger is his family not conforming to the standards he wants. And we need to let him in a little secret. There is no perfect family out there. He's never going to find it. And unfortunately, with this new family, he's finding that out. I found it really interesting just to see him unravel. What caused him to unravel? Mm-hmm. Because he reminded me a lot of Norman Bates in Psycho. Like, Norman Bates seemed like a normal person. But when it came to his mom, he became unhinged. And the same thing here. Jerry seems like a normal person. But when it comes to his family, he becomes unhinged. So he spends the whole first half of this movie trying to connect with this daughter and at some points he's trying too hard to make things right and then he finally does but then he instantly tears it apart that quickly quicker than it took him to build it up he tears it down and then what i found interesting throughout the movie too is i was almost rooting for him at this point to try to even though i knew what he did to try to connect with this family and make it work but of course at the end i was certainly happy because he got what he deserved but it was kind of weird because Here's your central character, and he is a bad person, but there was something about him that 
some kind of sympathy with him, but just with a dark edge, because you're just like, this is more of a, it's a mental problem. He, he needs to be seeking help. I mean, outside of going to jail for what he did, but I don't know. There, there's something likable about him, but very scary at the same time. And I agree too with, with the looks. The looks were great. I will get into one of them in one of my favorite scenes, but there was just something very interesting about this character kind of had layers. Mm-hmm. It's Terry O'Quinn's performance. It's amazing. Great stuff, man. And I'm glad you also focused on Terry O'Quinn because, uh, yeah, he is the center of the movie and it's all grounded in his performance. Some great thoughts and observations, man, because it just made me think of, it sounds cliche these days, but a lot of times, and it's you know portrayed in these movies, it's the quiet guy next door. Mm-hmm. And it's what lies beneath the surface, right? Looks like someone who is totally normal, someone who normalizes everything, who seems even-tempered, warm, kind, and caring, and seems to have the proper family values. Everything on the surface looks great, right? Uh, But you just really don't know somebody, or do you ever really know somebody to kind of, you know, ask that question? Because how can someone get like this, get away with what he got away with, in the fiction, but we do know that it is loosely based on a true story, but we'll get into that in our fun facts and trivia. But yeah, it, you know, it makes you think. It makes you think. But yeah, great thoughts. Terry Quinn's great in his portrayal. And, you know, also, it. I'll get into this later. That's a question I have because you mentioned triggers, right? And that is a result of probably early trauma. It could have been tra- childhood trauma, and we don't get a full understanding of what that was. You can think about it now, or the listeners could think about it now, but it'll be a question I have later. Is that something we needed to see or know more of in this movie? Is it necessary to know that? But uh, right. I have thoughts on that, that too. For later. So let's move into favorite scenes or moments. Where are some of your favorite scenes or moments from The Stepfather? All right. Well, my first favorite scene is that opening scene. No question about ding, it. Ding, ding. Yeah. I mean, it's the cold open. It's really well done. It's really well mm. done. Hell of a way to start this uh, horror film. So we open on a seemingly peaceful northwestern suburb. There are no title cards here, but we do learn eventually that this is Washington State, and it is suburbia. It seems to be like the perfect small town, the perfect small street in this small town. And we see the exterior of a seemingly peaceful home. Immediately cut to the interior of the home, and we see the stepfather, Henry Morrison, is covered in blood as he enters the bathroom. He places a suitcase on the toilet and looks in the mirror, seeing the blood spatter on his face and his eyeglasses. And man, it's that look on his face from having just committed an awful crime as he's muttering some like undecipherable words, which is great. He's just like moving his lips. We don't know what he's saying. But then he suddenly shifts to becoming this stoic, unaffected and uh, person that just getting down to business. He opens his suitcase, removes a fresh sport coat just from the cleaners and a fresh button-down shirt. He throws his bloody glasses into the suitcase along with his bloody shoes. He disrobes and showers, and then he begins changing his appearance by cutting his hair, shaving his beard, removing his... uh, He's already removed his eyeglasses, but he's putting in contacts now so he can see properly. And now we see him in his clean sweater, sport coat, shirt, and tie, and he looks clean, very clean. And he throws the remaining dirty, bloody clothes into the suitcase. And then we see these photos of this happy, loving family that are lining the wall. It's his wife, and it's his kids, and they're all smiling. 
and they seem like the perfect family unit. And then so just a really nice touch when he's walking down the hallway and notices a toy sailboat in the hallway and he picks it up and he goes into a child's room and he puts it into the toy chest. And we know that this bloody, horrific crime has occurred, but we don't see any bodies yet. It's just him walking around the house at this point. And he picks up that toy and puts it away. It's just a weird, quirky thing like a serial killer would do with like a compulsive disorder. It's just, again, someone who's committed an awful crime, but still insists on keeping the house neat and tidy. When you think you're not going to see any of the bloody mess, he descends the stairs. And this is great sound design because we hear the beeping tone of a phone off the hook in the background. And he walks downstairs into the absolutely nightmarish crime scene. And he just kneels down. He's tidying up a bit more. He puts a little cushion on a chair and, and the camera pans around. And we, well, we just see a, actually a wide shot of the living room. And there are just, I believe we see at least three bloody bodies strewn about. One's on the couch and two are on the floor. And there's just blood everywhere. It's disgusting. It's awful. Then he goes to exit. He opens the door and he's walking out and the camera pans over to a teddy bear on the ground next to a small child that is also deceased with blood everywhere. And again, it's just horrific. And the man, the stepfather, Henry Morrison, exits into the extreme opposite setting. It's just completely juxtaposed as to what we've just seen, the nightmare we've just witnessed. He walks out into the setting of this serene, quiet neighborhood. He's whistling Camptown races as he walks out and picks up the paper. We see the other neighbors coming out to collect their papers. He strolls down the street, cleanly shaven with his suitcase, and no one else is wiser to what he's just done. It's creepy as hell. And, and this is followed up by a brief scene where he's now aboard a ferry crossing the water, and he's resting his suitcase uh, filled with the bloody remnants of his old life on the edge of the boat, looks to see if anyone else is around, then simply knocks the suitcase overboard saying goodbye to his old life and beginning anew. It's a great way to open the film. There's some nice subtlety, and then you're just smacked in the mouth with the graphic violence, and then it returns you right to the serene scene, and you're like, who the hell is this guy, and what has he done, and why, and where is he going now? What's going to happen next? It's a great way to open a movie. Terry O'Quinn, the looks on his face. He must have just committed the murders, and he's still in a somewhat maybe manic state, but it's still played subtly or with some nice, it's just, he con- still controlled somewhat. You seem like he has this kind of crazy restrained performance. Then he kind of reins it back in and, and he knows he's got a job to do in cleaning up and getting changed and leaving the house and leaving this life behind. It's great stuff, that opening scene. Yeah, I had this down too. I knew you were going to have this down. It's such a great scene and such a terrible scene at the same time. Yeah. Because when you see this opening and you see Terry O'Quinn's character in the bathroom and you're just trying to piece together, okay, why is he in this state? Why is he doing this? You know something bad has happened, but you just don't know what it is. And then when he's all cleaned up and dressed and his changes appearance and you're thinking to yourself that's kind of odd and he's upstairs and like you said he's in the hallway and he sees something in the hallway and it's one of the kids toys and he picks it up and just puts it away okay that's kind of weird too and then he starts making his way down the stairs and you just see that bloody handprint and then the smear go down the hall and he's not reacting to it and you're like oh my god and then the camera follows him down and then you just see that wide shot of the living room and you see the bodies and the fact that he hears the phone 
beeping and he takes the time to hang it up. That doesn't make a difference. You're leaving. You're gone. You're not coming back to this house. But the fact that he takes the time to do it and then you think to yourself, oh, he's leaving fingerprints, but it doesn't really matter because he's all over that house. They're going to know it was him, but they're not going to know it's him because now he has a new identity. And then he starts walking out the door and then just makes it work. So then the camera pans down. Then you see the little girl and you're just like, oh, my God, he killed the little girl, too. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And then he walks out of the house with the suitcase and you're thinking to yourself, okay, why did he do this? He didn't even take the car. He's just walking away. Right. He's not taking any kind of possessions. So he's not stealing. So what made him do this? Why is he doing this? So it just makes it really frightening because what would bring someone to do this? And why is he doing this? And all you're seeing is the after effects. And that's what just makes it chilling. And we're only five minutes into the movie. Yep. That's what I liked about it because you kind of understand what's going on, but you don't understand what's going on. Where does it go from here? What is his next step? We see him throw the suitcase off the boat into the ocean. Okay, where is he going? Is he going to be just on the run now or what's going to happen? No, he's already five steps ahead. He already knows what he's going to do next, but we don't know. So that's just kind of makes it frightening too. And then I had to point out the fact too. Hey, we see butt cheeks and uh, we see full frontal <laughs> in this. So I had to say it. I was like, holy crap. Uh, another, another 80s movies. See some private parts. Absolutely. Butt cheeks. I love it. A Bill Bant butt cheeks appearance. I had to break the tension. Yeah, no, I've, that's great, man. Yeah, it's a pretty intense scene. Butt cheeks and uh, yeah, we get some, some side dick in this too. Yeah. Pretty funny. Great points, man. Great points because he's so methodical. In the scene, and it is very important to point this out, and I'm glad you did. I mean, when the film opens, you do not know what has occurred. Now, of course, there were spoilers aplenty for me. I'm doing research, and I'm aware that from the what's on the box segment or whatnot that he had murdered his family, so I knew that going in. But if you didn't know that information, the film opens with him in the bathroom covered in blood, but you don't know what's happened. So it's good to, to make that point because the big reveals then when you know he goes down the stairs and we see the bodies in the living room. But he is so methodical, and that just goes to show the level of, well, disturbing behavior, but he's clearly insane. Uh, he's got some real real issues, meaning I mean, if he's taking the time to tidy up and put the phone back on the, on the hook or whatnot, you know, it's just those kinds of actions show that there's something clearly not right in his head. But when you speak to, you know, what is his motivation, that's, I think, one of the most alluring things, too, about this film is the mystery of it, is wanting to know more. There's a curiosity, at least for me, is why did he do it? What made him the way he is? Will he do it again? How is he going to get away with it? And will he be caught? Or when will he be caught and by whom? And how, and all these questions, right? So that's the mystery. We have to figure these things out, or you want to see maybe the process, uh, speaking to what you had said earlier, the process of him unraveling and how does that happen? So it's a great hook, this opening. It's a great hook because now you're just presented with these questions and it's, uh, again, the allure of the mystery and answering the question. So great stuff. Yeah, what it also made me think was, was this his first family? Were those his biological kids or... Mm-hmm. was there a family before this? I mean, it's called the stepfather. So right away, you just assume that he was the stepfather for this family also. But then we don't know that for sure. So was this his first marriage, his first wife? And, his first, and you know, how long has he been living with these people? Because at least two of the kids are teenagers. 
And then all of a sudden he's snapped right. and now he's going into this downworld spiral, but he's going to just end up repeating over and over again. Or has maybe he's only been with them for two or three years. This is just his MO. I mean, we, we see that later in the movie that it looks like it's going to repeat again. But was that his actual family? Well, we get the answer. We actually get an answer to that. And it goes by quickly. There's the brief scene with the African-American detective. And he says, actually, Henry Morrison wasn't his first identity. He was someone else before that. Yes, we do. You are correct, Bill. That was not his first family. Mm -hmm. So he had probably, you know, are left to assume that he may have done it even before that, committed a crime before that or a murder before that. But uh, yeah, he's just been going from family to family, wife to wife, assuming new identities and blending in and just... They can't trace him. It's pretty upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, great stuff analyzing that that opening scene. I mean, I almost want to tell people to, if you haven't seen The Stepfather, uh, because this is a little bit more of a cult classic, just watch it for that opening scene. You'll be hooked. I promise you. Just watch it. Mm-hmm. Even though we just spoiled everything. Yeah, just I know. Because from a filmmaking standpoint, I've got mad respect because it's just really well crafted. It's well thought out. It's well shot, well acted, well staged. Yes. Great sound design, Mm -hmm. the juxtaposition between the crime scene inside and the serenity outside. It's smart. Smart filmmaking. So I concur. It's your turn, brother. Go ahead. Okay. It's more of a moment, but I'll have to set it up. So moving on from the opening scene, a year has passed and now uh, Terry O'Quinn is with the new family under the name Jerry Blake. And it's a wife and a teenage daughter who's about 16 years old. And throughout this whole process, the wife thinks Jerry is the bee's knees. And the daughter, Stephanie, has got reservations about him. And she's not too sure. So Jerry is doing whatever he can to get her to accept him as the stepfather because he wants this perfect family. And if it doesn't go that way... He's going to snap and bad things are going to happen. And we get to a point where Stephanie hears about the story of the murder from a year ago. She thinks it's Jerry. Jerry's able to convince her in a clever way that it's not him. So now she accepts him and now they seem to be the perfect family. Jerry got what he wants. He's got a loving wife and now a daughter who accepts him as her dad and everything's going to be right as rain. But unfortunately... There's a boy that goes to school with Stephanie, and they kind of got a little thing going on. The beginning of a, of a, I don't say a romance because they're 16 years old, but they might start dating at some point. Boy's name is Paul, and he picks up Stephanie from someplace, drives her home in the scooter. They go to the front door, and they kiss. And while they're kissing, out comes Jerry, and Jerry loses his shit on Paul. He just blast him. And the wife comes out, Susan, played by Shelly Hack. And she's like, what are you doing? Why are you yelling at this kid? They're just kissing. It's not a big deal. And Jerry's like, no, she shouldn't be doing this. She's too young, blah, 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 blah. Chases Paul off. Stephanie gets super pissed, basically calls Jerry psychotic. And everything that Jerry has built up to this point has now come crashing down. Even Susan at this point is mad at Jerry and tells him, what are you thinking? And she's mad at him at this point, too. Here it begins. So after this happens, Jerry comes out and walks to the front of the house. And you see Susan go inside and close the door. So it's just Jerry out there in the dark. Stephanie's run off. 
and Jerry just gives this look. Mm-hmm. And they hold it. And it's awesome because it makes you as a viewer so uncomfortable because it almost looks like he's literally looking through the screen, looking through you, and you can just tell he is processing what he is going to do. And it frightened the crap out of me. It really disturbed me. Damn, that's an awesome moment. That is an awesome moment because you know what he's done in the past. And you can see he's been kind of teetering on snapping again. But now you know Mm -hmm. this moment has set him off. And this woman and her child are in terrible trouble. And they have no idea what might happen to them. And just that look. I mean, they, they just hold it the perfect amount of time. It's not too long. It's not too short. It is just right. It's framed perfectly. And he literally looks like he's looking across the universe. Yeah. I just loved it. Great, great moment. Uh, That's awesome that you were so affected by it. And yeah, like you said, it's all due to Terry O'Quinn's wonderful performance. Yeah, because that's that's a huge turning point. I mean, it's kind of an it's an inciting moment as to what happens thereafter, because He knows he can't come back from that. He's just, uh, as his wife, Susan, has put so clearly that he just ruined everything he had worked so hard to build to regain the trust and rebuild this relationship with the stepdaughter, Stephanie. And it just went all out the window. And he can't come back from that. It's over. So this, this new life, this new situation he's built and put together, this new family is now crumbled in a matter of moments. And he, you can... You just know, even as with that cold stare, that within his skull and his brain, the wheels are turning. He's already putting his plan, his routine, his method of operation is about to go into effect again. And we see it all start to unfold. And it's great because we're like, we know, we know from the bits and pieces we've learned from earlier that this is his routine, like how he's going to go about destroying this family and building a new one in a neighboring town. So scary stuff. Great moment, man. Yeah, I was going to also speak of a moment, but I guess it's really a mini scene. And I'm going to take it back a little bit. You had mentioned the moment when Stephanie kind of takes a little bit of, it goes for, let's just say she's reaching a little bit, but start assumes that Jerry is potentially this killer, this mass murderer that had committed this heinous crime 13 months earlier. And I'll set it up just briefly. Jerry and his new wife, Susan, who he's been married to for a year now, are hosting a barbecue at their pad when one of the party goers brings up an article in the Seattle Examiner, the local newspaper, about the family mass murder that occurred 13 months prior, which of course puts Jerry on alert, but he plays it close to the vest. I mean, he, he plays it actually as if he's disgusted. And he's bothered by this crime and by this article that they're reading and doesn't want that sort of thing even happening anywhere near his perfect small town, near his new perfect family. And then Stephanie goes inside and she goes downstairs to get some more ice cream for the party. When suddenly, as she's getting the ice cream out of the freezer, suddenly Jerry comes down in a bit of a fit of a rage and he starts spouting what seems to be nonsensical outbursts, which seem to be him channeling memories from his childhood of some sort, as if he's playing the role of his own father being strict with him, saying things like, you're daddy's little angel and shut up. Let me out. Let me out. We're going to keep this family together. You better believe it. As if he's, again, channeling like his father's voice. And it's 
quite creepy. And Terry O'Quinn, just a badass performance. He's just switching gears left and right. And of course, then he sees his stepdaughter standing right there. She's getting the ice cream and she's standing in shock watching him. And he attempts to make an excuse for his behavior by saying, oh, honey, it's just, you know, the work I do as a realtor is just a lot of stress from the job and I, I just have to let off a little steam. But more importantly, it's just this moment, you know, as he's channeling these voices and he's talking out loud, he's having these little fits and he's throwing his arms up and outward and and little jabs in the air, like punching the air and turns and to see her standing there watching him in horror and his face just changes. He just transforms and simp- like a little smile comes over his face and he's like, oh, hi, Stephanie. <laughs> like It's like the creepiest thing. And she's just, it's, it's a great moment and it's a great little scene and it just shows off Tara Quinn's range. So I just wanted to mention then that uh, little scene real quick. Yeah, yeah, that is a pretty good scene. I didn't like the setup for it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I think even you talking about this, because when I said earlier about my initial thoughts, why I was rooting for him in a sense, I think I was rooting for him to have the perfect family so he wouldn't be set off to commit more murders. God, I hope everything Good works point. out. So maybe it wasn't necessarily I felt sorry for him. It was more of I was just so nervous for the rest of the family that I didn't want him to get set off and kill them. So it wasn't maybe necessarily rooting for him. No, it's a great point. You don't want the other family members, specifically his stepdaughter, Stephanie, to make waves uh, or to trigger him any further because she's been acting out as a result of not trusting him. In this fiction, she had lost her father previous a year previously, and now he's stepping into the stepfather role. She thinks he's creepy. She's been acting out at school, getting into trouble. She's gotten suspended and now expelled. And you're just like, oh, don't don't trigger him. Right. Don't force his hand. Don't make waves. Don't set him off. Or you hope that something else like this newspaper article or something else or his new wife or somebody, don't trigger him. Just let everything be okay so he doesn't commit that heinous crime again. So you're absolutely right. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the setup isn't probably the best. And I just wanted to mention this real quick to make it clear. Uh, There's another uh, side story here in the film or B story that's important because it may play into our other commentary throughout the podcast is that the reason that the article about the slaying that occurred 13 months earlier, which was at the hands of Jerry, but he was at that time known as Henry Morrison. The reason that the article is in the paper is because that family that he was a part of that he murdered, well, his wife that he was you know, married to at that time, her brother, which would make, I guess, his brother-in-law technically, yeah. has come back into town. His, her brother-in-law was in Europe traipsing around for nine months, I guess. He mentions something about it very briefly and has come back into town and is trying to shed light on what happened to his sister and the family that was murdered. And he believes wholeheartedly, of course, that it was the husband, that being Morrison, now we know him as Jerry Blake, and that he disappeared. And so he wants to find him. And the way he's going to find him is by hiring this reporter who was there the day of the crime and had done the investigating, uh, investigative reporting. And he asks the reporter to bring the story back to light, to publish another article and publish a photo of Morrison so that maybe somebody out there, you know, locally might recognize him and know where he is. Because this brother-in-law's theory is that he's got to be close because he had quit his job, but he was pretending as if he was going to uh, work and coming home on time. And so that meant whatever he was doing and setting up his new life 
he couldn't have gone too far. He must be within a certain mile radius. And he wants this reporter again to publish this article about the murder. So the bottom line is the brother-in-law, the brother of the slain wife from the beginning is investigating. That's why the article ends up in the paper, which kind of sets some things into motion Mm -hmm. as far as putting Jerry Blake into a corner. Right. Yeah. And one of the things it's not, hopefully I'm not stepping on one of your favorite scenes. Now, Stephanie, because she's heard about the article and she's seen how Jerry reacted in the basement, she writes the paper and wants a picture of the murderer. And Jerry is home and he intercepts the mail and he sees it's from the newspaper and he opens it up and he sees his old picture. And he just has this great wave of emotion you just see go through him right away. And as he's looking at it, here comes Stephanie home from school and she asks him, oh, did I get anything in the mail? He's like, oh, yeah, you did. But gives her the Cosmo magazine instead. And here it is. I'm rooting for him, but not rooting for him because I'm I'm thinking to myself too, just switch out the picture and just give it to her just so she can forget about this. And sure enough, that's what he does. He swaps out the picture, puts it in the envelope, puts it back in the mail, then gives it to her. And then she opens it thinking, okay, the picture I'm going to see is my stepdad and it's not. So she's like, oh my God, I've been thinking badly about him all this time. And he actually is a decent guy and I should accept him. So it's a nice little ruse by Jerry. But as I said in my last favorite scene, yeah, he, he tears it apart pretty quick. But yeah, that's one of those moments I'm almost rooting for him, but I'm not really rooting for him. I'm rooting for Stephanie and Susan to get out of this. Okay. That's great, man. I, I Just a, a really cool observation. I appreciate it. I'm all about that. And I'm along the ride with you on that. And my last comment on the moment or scene I was just talking about when he is in the basement and having his outburst right in front of Stephanie when she first really sees him in a bit of a frenzy and a crazed state, that this lets us in on the fact that there clearly is some mental illness and a trauma that he had suffered most likely as a child that has led to him being this way and believing that he must at all costs, create the perfect family, as you've said. And that's kind of where I'm like, oh man, it'd be interesting to know a little bit more of exactly what happened to him to make him this way. But that's what I liked about that scene a little bit, is it let you in a little bit into his psychosis. So uh, we can move on. All right. So for me, my, yeah, technically third favorite scene, and for some reason I think we're going to match on this one too, is when Jerry finally snaps And it goes back to your quote in the very beginning when he doesn't know, who am I here? Yep. So after he tears Paul a new one and Stephanie runs off and he realizes he's now messed everything up and it's time for him to move on to the next family, we see him start doing the steps. He quits his job. He goes to find a new one under a new identity. He literally takes the boat that we see in the beginning to sail out to wherever this new job is and while he's in this boat, he changed his identity. So now he's Billy Hodgkins. He's setting up his new life, which means that, you know, he's got to clear off the other one. And what happens is Susan, his wife, goes to call his office at the real estate where he's been working. And she calls the real estate office to get a hold of Jerry. And the real estate office tells her that Jerry no longer works there. Jerry quit. He's gone. So what's he been up to? Where has he been going? Jerry comes home and Susan's there in the kitchen and she goes, where you been? And Jerry's like, I've been out showing houses. 
and she replies, well, I just called your office earlier today and they said you weren't there. She's like, well, that's weird. I didn't get any messages. Well, they actually said you don't work there anymore. And Jerry tries the ruse like, oh, they got this new secretary and she's always making mistakes. I'm going to call the office and take care of this. This is a bunch of crap. And he gets on the phone and he's pretending he's called the office. And Susan's like, oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. She's like, are you still work there? And he's like, yeah, I still work there. She's like, oh, okay. Just a misunderstanding. But he's like, I'm going to call anyway. He's pretending to call the phone. He's like, how can they not know that, you know, Hodgkins is still in the office? And that's when Susan's like, what? What are you talking about? And then that's when we have the lines of, wait a minute, who am I here? And Susan responds, Jerry. And Jerry just comes back with, that's right, Jerry Blake. Thanks, honey. And then he takes the phone and just clocks Susan right in the face. I mean, so bad. You see when he pulls the phone back, there's just blood all over it. You look at Susan's face, her lips all busted. And now it's time for Jerry to move on to the next part of his plan, which is he's going to kill his wife and his daughter. Holy shit. What are they going to do? Pretty cool moment. Pretty scary moment. It was just the culmination of Jerry finally just snapping. Agreed. A hundred percent. Yeah. That, I have that as well. I have it as my final favorite scene. It's the whole finale. I, I loved the ending. I mean, that moment, it's the reveal. He's been caught. Cat's out of the bag. He slipped up. He said, Hotchkins, and that's the wrong alias. Susan picked up on it, and he's like, well, shit. I guess it's happening right now. I'm going to have to kill everybody. Yep. <laughs> and he just begins. It's craziness, and it just turns into a series of insane moments. So it's a very hectic and chaotic and awesome and violent ending to this film because afterwards... He had smashed her in the face with the phone receiver. They battle it out for a moment, wrestling at the foot of the basement stairs when she stumbles backwards, falls down the staircase, falls unconscious. And Jerry immediately goes over to the kitchen knife set, pours it all over the counter, chooses one of them. And we get this great tense moment when he's sitting on the floor because the dog has come out and is barking and he tries to get the dog to come to him. The dog does come to him. He's got the knife in his hand and as an audience member, you're going, holy hell, please do not stab the dog. Do not kill the dog. Because if I had any sympathy for your sick ass, if you kill the dog, you are Satan. Right. You bought that dog. And that's what we're weird about. We're weird as human beings like that. We're like, oh, we can understand if you'd kill another human being. But if you kill an innocent puppy then you're worse than the devil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's just how we think as human beings. It's crazy. So it's a tense moment. But as he's caressing and holding the dog and we're like, oh shit, he's going to kill the dog. Who comes home? But Stephanie. Stephanie walks in. She doesn't see Jerry in the kitchen all bloodied up. Dog comes running out. She greets the dog. Stephanie goes upstairs and we see Jerry with this great line as he's now in his crazed state holding the knife, kind of watching her as she's after she's gone upstairs and he goes, you're a very bad girl. Oh, boy, here we go. Meanwhile, this is intercut with the brother-in-law who I mentioned earlier. He's racing back over to their house. Now, the brother-in-law is named Jim Ogilvy, and Jim has put together the pieces, and he knows that Jerry Blake was Henry Morrison that killed his sister, the part of the previous family in the cold open. So Jim has put the pieces together, as I said. Long story short, he's racing over to the house because he knows Jerry Blake's the killer. That intensity is intercut with while we're watching Jerry walk through the house and stalking his family members. So Stephanie now has gotten into the shower 
and she's completely vulnerable. And finally, Jim makes it back to the Blake house, racing over there in his beat up car. And he's ringing the doorbell with absolutely no answer. And Jerry has walked downstairs, but doesn't answer the door. But now Jim decides to help himself inside the house. And he's looking for Jerry. When the door closes behind him, we, of course, see Jerry standing right there behind the door with the knife. But the knife is behind his back. And Jim turns to see Jerry, notices some blood on him. And before Jim can pull out his gun, he has a gun, by the way. Before he can pull his gun out to shoot, Blake... Jerry, that is. Jerry charges him and stabs him in the gut. It's absolutely brutal. He jabs him and then like yanks the knife upward. This is where the slasher aspect kind of comes in. Finally, you know, the the couple of times we actually see this and he just guts Jim. Jim falls down and dies. Meanwhile, uh, Stephanie's gotten out of the shower. So Jerry goes upstairs to confront her and he lunges at her, but she manages to dodge him, and she runs into the bathroom, locking herself in. And this sequence I found really intense, because we see from her point of view as she's inside the bathroom that the back of the door to the bathroom is a, a long mirror, and we have Jerry on the outside just frantically banging on the door with the knife and just trying to knock it down, and inside we see the semi-frantic Stephanie, and the fact that the back of the bathroom door is a mirror, it shatters, and... Then Stephanie picks up one of the glass shards to use as a weapon. Meanwhile, outside, Jerry's banging on the door, and he then literally crashes through the door. It's a cool shot and charges into the bathroom, but Stephanie takes the glass shard and immediately stabs him in the upper arm. And then she makes her way into a closet and up into the attic. It's a whole chase sequence. He follows her up into the attic and once again lunges at her, but falls through the insulation in the roof and falls to the bathroom below. He's completely dazed. Now Stephanie comes down from the attic and moves towards the stairs leading down to the ground floor when she sees her mom, who has managed to come crawling up from the downstairs basement, and she's beaten and battered. She's looking up the staircase at Stephanie, attempting to crawl up to her. But suddenly, of course, Jerry appears, grabs Stephanie, throws her to the ground, and lo and behold, well, Susan at the bottom of the stairs now has that gun that Jim had brought with him, and she shoots Jerry in the back shoulder. He falls sliding down the stairs, but he gets back up again to go after Stephanie. When Susan shoots him again in the back of the leg, he falls again, but this time face forward, struggling to get himself up the stairs where his knife is now resting at the top of the stairs. Stephanie goes for the knife at the same time. They struggle over it for a moment, when Stephanie finally takes hold of it and stabs Jerry right in the old chest. He rises to his feet, barely manages to get out the words, I love you, (laughs) to Stephanie. And then there's a nice stunt roll down the stairs as he falls, crashing into the railing, and we think he dies, at least. He appears to die. And all of this happens to some really bad music in the background, I'll admit that. And the final shot is of Stephanie at the top of the stairs, who appears strangely unaffected by everything that's just happened. But it's still a lot lot of fun, a lot of hectic, chaotic, uh, slasher-style action at the end. Uh, So that was my final favorite scene, the finale itself. The movie ends with Stephanie cutting down the birdhouse that Jerry had built for her and the family earlier in the movie. And everything is okay again. Yeah, I did like the uh, birdhouse cutting down moment. I thought that was kind of cool. I'm like, oh, there she is, destroying another family, bird family. Taking it out on the bird family. I'm sure they all got scared off by the noise, but I thought that was kind of cool that she does that. Yeah, for that final scene, poor Jim. Here he is throughout the whole movie trying to find Jerry and literally lasts 30 seconds once he figures it all out. Yep. Because he sees him, 
And it's almost like a family reunion kind of moment. Right. If Jerry didn't have that blood on his face, I almost feel like he just would have been like, what's up, man? What's going on? But the fact he sees the blood yeah. and you know his gun, wherever he's got it tucked in his jacket, he just can't pull it out in time. Jerry shows him no mercy. Right. And then what I found interesting at the end is after Stephanie stabs Jerry and he falls down the stairs and he's lying there. We're thinking he died. And then you have Susan at the bottom of the stairs and she's all battered and beaten. And Stephanie just sits up there just staring at Jerry. Yeah. Don't you want to go check on your mom? Yeah. There's some questions there with that final sequence. But yeah, overall, I thought it was a lot of fun and pretty tense. It was. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, um, let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint departments. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have stab holes. Yes, and if it doesn't have stab holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Jason, what do you got for Swiss cheese or complaints? Well, here's a kind of a weird complaint, or at least a thought I had, because I thought this was kind of weird in the movie. We know that Jerry, well, he was Henry Morrison, but his new identity, his new alias is Jerry Blake Realtor, Mm -hmm. working for, I believe it's called like American Eagle Realty. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. In Oak Ridge or Oak Ridge or Oak Ridge, Washington. So he's showing a new house to this family. It seems like a nice couple with a very young daughter. And here's my question. Now, if you're the family being shown the new home, so you're looking at a new home with your realtor, would you allow that realtor to have alone time with your young daughter, pushing her on a swing in the backyard? I just thought it was kind of odd. There's a scene in the film where Jerry, and maybe it's just because we know that Jerry's a bad guy, but he has a, has a moment with this couple's daughter And he's talking to her while he's pushing the swing, saying, I used to push my daughter on the swing when she was only three years old. And he mistakenly gets the names of his daughter wrong, and she picks up on it. But uh, anywho, I just thought it was odd that he's pushing this young kid on a swing while the parents are looking at the house. This is how I would answer it. In the 80s, I wouldn't give it a second (laughs) thought. Today, hell no. Not leaving my sight. That's the way things have changed. Oh, it's so great. And that's just the way it was. The fact is, ladies and gents and listeners out there, that's always our go-to excuse on this podcast. The excuse being, well, it was the 80s. (laughs) That's just how it was. Mm -hmm. Always like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we would go out and run around the neighborhood and ride our bikes all over the place, go into town, come back. You'd hear your mom ring the dinner bell and you'd better show up for dinner on time. But that was it. You just got to roam free. No helicopter parents back then. Nope. Be back when the streetlights go on. 
Yeah. And that's why you get all the negligent parents in 80s movies. Yep. There you go. My favorite trope. What's uh, your first complaint? I found this amusing, but it's kind of a complaint. In the opening, when we first meet the new family, and it's Stephanie and, and Susan, and Stephanie's riding her bike home, and she goes to come in the back door, and then Susan throws those leaves on her, and then you see the backyard uh-huh. of leaves. I'm like, how many goddamn leaves do they have in that backyard? Like, you see the yard, and everything is green. <laughs> it's like, did they collect all the leaves from the neighborhood and put them in the backyard? That's 10 years worth of leaves in that backyard. That's funny. That's funny. I've never yeah. seen a yard it's with a that lot much of leaves. leaves in there. It's like, holy shit, that's a lot of leaves. Yeah, the only other yard I could think of maybe is the backyard of uh, the home in Risky Business. Maybe. When you have... Uh... Even that wouldn't <laughs> have as many leaves as this yard had. No, but at least those no. trees, they look like fall. Like, even in the neighborhood shots, all the leaves were still green. That's great. I was like, where'd they get all these leaves? Uh, uh, that's really funny. Well, my next complaint is going to be a quick series of complaints, which I'm just calling bad advice from professionals. Oh, there you go. We have a quick scene where the reporter, Al, is talking to the brother-in-law, Jim Ogilvy, and... He had lost his sister in a brutal murder just 13 months prior. And the, the reporter goes, why don't you get on with the rest of your life? Forget about it. I know. <laughs> uh, what? And then in a following scene, Stephanie, we understand, you know, she's got some some issues. She had lost her dad and now she's dealing with this creepy stepfather. She's talking to a therapist. Great. And the therapist says, yeah, sometimes running away is the best thing to do. Giving everybody some breathing room. I'm like, what? No therapist would tell you to run away from your problems ever. That's terrible advice. No. And then we have the brother-in-law, Jim, talking to the cop, the police officer. And he's like, what do you think I should do? And the cop says, I'd get a gun and blow the son of a bitch away. I'm like, what? Yeah, a lot of good that did him. (laughs) Right? So I'm just saying a lot of bad advice, inappropriate advice from some professionals in this movie. I certainly agree with that. And then speaking of the reporter, yeah, we make a big deal. We see him in the beginning with the brother, and then the brother yells at him about not having the picture in the paper, mm-hmm. and then that was the last we saw the reporter. I was like, shouldn't he come back at some point? Shouldn't he still be kind of helping? I thought it was just yeah. weird. Yeah, I, I agree. He was a loose end to me. The reporter and the cop both had like just, the cop only had one brief scene. That's true. He's gone. No police after that. Didn't work for me. What other complaints do you got? Yeah, like I said, I I thought it was kind of weak at the barbecue that they brought up the article and then Stephanie puts it together that her stepfather might be a killer. I'm like, come on. You really think he's that bad that you would think he would be a killer? He is, but I just did not like it. I didn't like how that was set up at all. No, I agree. I agree. It It was a reach for her character to try to put that together that way. At least her friend called her out on it. Yes, I did like that. So I thought that was smart that they wrote that in there. Mm -hmm. Because it was a stretch for her to make that connection to be like, oh, you saw an article in the paper and now you think your stepfather is a murderer? We're like, what? It was weird. It was a little janky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Speaking of Jim Olgavi, the brother-in-law that's doing the investigating and trying to track down Jerry Blake, a.k.a. Henry Morrison. After his visit with the cop, he decides to go back to his sister's old house, the house we saw in the very beginning. Oh, yeah. He goes inside, goes downstairs to see what was once Henry Morrison's workbench. It's been 13 months or so since the family murders and Henry's belongings are still downstairs in his workspace. Like the house hasn't been cleared out at all because Jim finds the picture 
of the family, like the Polaroid of the family still there and the travel and leisure magazine that he looks through and he finds that the pages are torn out, which is like a clue as to now that's going to send him to the public library, which then just leads to my next complaint, which is then because Jim goes to the public library because he thinks that the pages that were torn out of this 13 month old travel and leisure magazine hold the clue as to where Jerry Blake now resides. I hated that. I was like, come on, man. No one would put that together. Jack Reacher no. would not put that together. Like, I should check this <laughs> magazine and see what pages he ripped down. Just the fact he finds it so right. quickly. Yeah, I thought that was terrible. I totally agree. And the fact that Jerry's belongings were still in the basement of that house uh, over a year later, and then somehow Ogilvy puts the clues together and goes to the public library. It was too easy. That was a major crime scene, and everything is still in there. Wait. Did you process that stuff? Yeah. Wouldn't that stuff be disposed of then because of what had happened in that house? And he just walked in Agreed. there, just yeah. walks right down the basement. Oh, here's a magazine. Here's my clue. Right. All yeah. these detectives and police couldn't yeah. figure it out. I found it out in two minutes. Hated it. All too Hated easy. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a couple other things that I can go over real quick. What else do you have? Yeah. So there's a other storyline where Stephanie has seen a psychiatrist. and Yes, the therapist. Absolutely. Yeah. Or psychiatrist. Yeah, same same deal. Yeah. And at one point, he tells Stephanie, he's like, you know what? I'll, I'll meet with your stepfather and maybe we can see where things are going. So he poses as a potential buyer for a house. Right. That way, because he's been calling the house and Jerry doesn't want to talk to him. So he's like, all right, let me try this. So the two things I didn't get with that scene was, A, when Jerry shows up, he does not identify himself as Stephanie's therapist, which I think. That's not a good move. That's like under false pretense. You should not do that. That's exactly what I wrote down, like almost verbatim. Okay, yeah. I know if he does that, then Jerry might leave, but you should do that anyway. So Jerry's showing the therapist the house, and then at one point, because the therapist is trying to ask questions, and Jerry catches on right away, like there's something up with this dude, and, and then takes a two-by-four and basically bashes the therapist's head in. Well, luckily, right. when you bash someone's head with the therapist, there's no blood splatter anywhere. He just falls dead on, on the wallpaper, and then he just wraps him up and ends up disposing the body. It was like, come on, there was more to it. Because then there was a scene later on when Stephanie goes to the house, and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's going to find something. And I'm glad she didn't, so I'll give him credit for that. But when you beat someone senseless like that with a two-by-four, he's got a bigger mess than just uh, rolling him up in some wallpaper and, and dumping him in a car. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I had basically written down the fact that the therapist, first of all, I felt like, I thought there was a lot of things wrong with this therapist and Stephanie's relationship in the way that they 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 seem very friendly. It didn't seem very professional. They were just more friends. Not that that can't happen or that's entirely wrong, but he very much is on her side Here's a question that I had too, that because she is a minor, her character is 16 years old, that I suppose, is it okay for the therapist to contact the parents then and speak on what the client had shared with him? Basically, therapist, client, privilege sort of thing. I mean, what you share with your therapist stays between the two of you, but he's been calling the house and he wants to talk to Jerry, but of course, Jerry doesn't want to talk to him. But I, I don't know. I had questions about that. Maybe a listener can answer that, how that works when a therapist is dealing with a minor 
and the minor shares particular information, and thus the therapist decides to take action of some sort and or to contact parents regarding such information that the minor had shared. So I have questions about that, but you are right. The therapist is way out of bounds, crosses all kinds of boundaries by posing as a potential home buyer, and it's totally under false pretenses, and it's way out of line. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't deserve to get his head bashed in, but that's a wrong tack to take, and it's insane. And who do you think you are? Completely unprofessional. It's too much. It's just too much. And then he meets his demise, gets wrapped up in the lining, and no blood on the walls. (laughs) All wrapped up nice and neat. Let's see. What else do I got here, Bill Bant? Speaking of Stephanie, we see the actress who's supposed to be portraying a 16-year-old character, and the actress, Jill Shoalin, was actually 23 years old during the filming. Her character is 16 in the film, and we get more butt cheeks, and we get full frontal nudity. I shouldn't say full frontal, but we see boobs. Mm -hmm. And this girl's 16. That bothered me. I was just like, this is, we don't need to see this. She's She's too young. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I knew the actress was of age. I just thought it was inappropriate that they had her playing a character that was underage and being in a nude scene in this film. It was just unnecessary. We get it. She's getting into the shower. We know she's naked. We don't need to see her actually naked. I mean, I didn't know what her age was until after I watched the movie the first time, but I knew since she was nude at some point in the movie, I'm like, all right, she's at least got to be over 18 or 21. Because I'm like, she seems like she's 16, but I could just tell him like, well, she looks way older than, I don't know. There was just something very weird about her performance. Totally agree. Not that I would think it was bad, but I just knew I'm like, you're playing someone that I know you're obviously not. And I think that just kind of made it weird for me. It was strangely off-putting. Yes, I totally agree. I knew one of the first things I said when I saw her, I understood that she was supposed to be younger, but I was like, oh no, she's older. She's older. The actress is older. She looks young. She looks very young, but she doesn't look like she's 16. Right. Maybe she was 18. Right. But then it's confirmed that she's playing a 16-year-old, and then we see her naked in the shower, and I was like, "Um, I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea of this. Right. But I know the reality is the actress is 23, and I'm not saying that makes it okay by any stretch of the imagination. Just then, oh, then she should be nude in the scene. There is some things in the research regarding the fact that the actress was actually in an interview says she was uncomfortable with doing the nude scene and that the director had justified portraying the character as being extremely vulnerable in that scenario because we know the killer is lurking downstairs as as an approaching. But it was a little strange trying to figure out how to feel about like the portrayal. Yeah, wasn't I would I just did I didn't care for that choice. You could have just had her in the shower, not shown anything. You didn't need it. We see it all the time. You, we see uh, an actress take her robe off, but we see her from the shoulders up. We see her bare shoulders. We know she's naked. Right. We don't need to see her naked. There we go. It's the 80s. Got to show 80s boobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what else do you have? Because I'm, I'm out. Yeah, I was just going to say the music in this is not great. It's a very 80s. There's some cheesy synthesizer stuff in it. That's all. I just wasn't a huge fan. It was okay. Didn't do anything for me. Uh, Last complaint I'll say is that probably not a good idea if you're a criminal to stay within like a 50 to 70 mile radius of the location of your previous crime. But I don't know. I was like, although hiding in plain sight and because of 
this guy's talent maybe to blend in is maybe the smart way to go? Is it that fact that he is being crazy like a fox? Or is it the simple fact that he has a tremendous ego and is overconfident in part due to the fact that he's insane? Yeah, I was very surprised because I figured once he got on the boat one year later on the other side of the United States, and I was like, wait, he's based in the same area. So that did surprise me that he stayed pretty much within striking distance of his previous murders. Yeah. It's almost as if, yeah, he's asking to be caught, Mm -hmm. which is another common theme you see in these serial killer movies. Yeah. All right, let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Who do we choose this week, Jason? Well, we were just talking about Stephanie, and I chose that actress, Jill Sholin. At least it was a, hey, it's that actor for me. I was not familiar with this actress. I thought she was quite capable in the role of Stephanie Maine in this film. Jill Sholin was the daughter of well-known fashion designer Dorothy Sholin. Uh, She was raised in Burbank, California, started her career as a teen in the fame-influenced TV movie pilot called The Best of Times in 1981, which co-starred Nicolas Cage and Crispin Glover. Wow. And then she landed in the horror genre initially when starring in Wes Craven's TV movie, Chiller, in 1985. Hadn't heard of it. Never saw it. Are you familiar with Chiller? I've not seen it. I've heard of it. Don't know that story. Okay. Well, she was then in Babes in Toyland alongside Keanu Reeves in 86. And then her big hit was with this film, The Stepfather, in 87. She then went on to co-star alongside Freddy Krueger himself, Robert England, in The Phantom of the Opera, and then is somewhat known for a film called Cutting Class, also in 1989, in which she co-starred with Brad Pitt. And she ended up dating him briefly and was actually engaged to Brad Pitt for three months before breaking off the engagement in Budapest. Wow. I mean, this could be false internet research, but that's the info I got. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I should have probably done a deeper dive now that I'm saying this out loud, but that's what I read. And there are photos. She she dated Brad Pitt. I mean, there's photos of them together uh, when they were clearly both very young. Made a very attractive couple at the time. So after that, Jill didn't do much after 1996. And uh, she hung it up. She was done. She's now settled down with her two kids, married to musician-composer Anthony Marinelli. Anthony Marinelli happened to work in the music department on War Games, which we covered on this podcast. And he was also the composer of the score to Young Guns, which also co-starred Terry O'Quinn. There you go. A little six degrees of separation there, yeah. or less. Good stuff. To conclude, Jill Sholin. She's now 60 years old, still with us, but got out of the acting uh, acting life and has settled down with her family. Right. So good for her. All right. This takes us to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about the stepfather? So first and foremost, yes, the stepfather was loosely based on the true story of John Emil List, who was an American mass murderer and longtime fugitive. This is crazy. I'd never heard of this guy. But on November 9th, 1971, he killed his wife, mother, and three children at their home in Westfield, New Jersey, and then disappeared. He had planned the murders so meticulously that nearly 
A month passed before anyone suspected that anything was amiss. List assumed a new identity, remarried, and eluded justice for nearly 18 years. He was finally apprehended in Virginia on June 1st, 1989, after the story of his murders was broadcast on the television program America's Most Wanted. There's some true grime drama for you. Very crazy. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel when it comes to facts and truth for this movie. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So here's some different titles of the stepfather in different countries. So in Argentina, it is known as Death Haunts Every Step. In Germany, it is known as Kill Daddy Kill. Greece, Violence. Japan, W. I don't know what the hell that means. Oh, okay. And in Mexico, it is known as Bloody Madness. Portugal, Premeditated Murders. And in Switzerland, Fatal Encounter. Ooh. Yeah. Great readings of those titles. I appreciate it. These are all terrible titles. Yes. <laughs> I think The Stepfather is very appropriate. Yes, I think it works. That's the correct title. Director Joseph Rubin originally wanted Jerry Blake, the character, to whistle the Barbara Streisand song, The Way We Were, instead of Camptown Races. But the rights to the song, The Way We Were, proved to be too expensive. Can you imagine Terry Quinn walking around whistling The Way We Were? Can't say I can really... I heard the song, I could probably sing along with it a little bit or hum the right. tune, but I can't pull it up in my mind or hear it in my mind. No, they're fine with what they have. Offhand. It works. Yeah. So a little more background on the story of the stepfather. So supposedly, screenwriter Donald E. Westlake based the character of Stephanie on his real-life teenage stepdaughter, who he was having difficulty getting along with. True life brought to the, the screen there. Speaking of other films we've covered on this podcast, at one point, the actress Jill Sholin, who plays Stephanie, is reading The Outsiders oh, yeah, right. by S.E. Hinton while she's lying in bed. And two years earlier, Jill Sholin, the actress, appeared in That Was Then, This Is Now, which was based on another S.E. Hinton novel. Yes. With uh, Milo Estevez and oh, the Nightbreed guy. The lead yeah. guy in Nightbreed? Yes. Craig Sheffer. Right. I'm a fan of that movie. David Cronenberg loved that movie. This was followed by two sequels, Stepfather 2, which Terry O'Quinn was in, Stepfather 3, which betrayed by a different character, and they explained that in the movie. And they did a remake, a remake called The Stepfather, released in 2009. Did you see the remake? No, I have not seen it. I like some of those actors. I have, but I don't remember it at all. Here's a fun fact. Almost the entire cast of The Stepfather also appeared on The X-Files. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How about that? Like 16 cast members ended up appearing on The X-Files. Some of them had reoccurring roles. Yeah, I didn't want to throw that one out there because I've never seen an episode of The X-Files. Okay. Well, as soon as we conclude this podcast, you and I are going to have a long talk about that. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. Anything else on facts and trivia? Did we reveal that on this podcast that Bill Bant really just doesn't watch much television at all? Have we told our listeners that? Have we shared that little tidbit about you? Yeah, because, you know, when I said Lost, Lost is, as of right now, technically the last network television show that I've watched. There you go. Yeah. But you're a Walking Dead fan. Yeah. Yeah, I do watch that. AMC. You'll watch, you'll watch some, uh, what do you watch? What uh, reality competition show do you watch? Is it Survivor? Survivor correct. Right. So you watch some TV. Yeah, very little, though. Some TV series here and there. 
Yeah, maybe once uh, we're done doing this podcast 10 years from now, I'll go back and watch all these shows I missed. And you watch The Mandalorian. Yes, I do. So there's still a handful, but yeah, very little. Yeah. Bill Bant's mainly a movie buff. He loves the movies, especially the 80s movies. And that's why we're here, ladies and gents, and we can keep this rolling. What's next, Bill Bant? It's box office time. So The Stepfather was released on January 23rd, 1987 in 105 theaters. The movie was bought and distributed by New Century Vista Films, who tried to market it as a slasher film. There was no information on the film's budget, but it did gross $2.5 million domestically. It debuted number 22 at the box office and was never in enough theaters to crack the top 10. It was the 140th highest grossing movie in the United States in 1987. Moving on to reviews, growing up in the late 80s, we would watch At the Movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of The Stepfather was unanimous. Two thumbs down. Gene found the movie to be truly a sick movie, while Roger thought the movie did have a certain skill in the terms of directing, writing, and acting, but then throws it all away for standard slasher fare. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 89%, and it has an IMDb rating of 6.7, which takes us to additional thoughts and questions. There's some additional thoughts and questions we have about the stepfather. Just a real quick one. During that opening scene, you mentioned it right from the get. We see the stepfather descend the stairs into the brutal crime scene just to exit into the serene setting of a rustic neighborhood. And we watch him walk down the street with a suitcase. And the question is, where is he walking to? (laughs) Because like you said, he left his whole life behind. He left his car behind. So does he just grab a cab at some point? Because the next scene, we see he's already on the ferry. Did he just walk all the way to the pier to get on the ferry? That's a good question. He doesn't even go to the sidewalk. He's like walking on the street. Literally, yeah, literally down the middle of the street. Where is he planning on walking to? How far is he going? No, that is a good question. Yeah, because that's the thing I know. It's like, he's not taking the car. They're all going to know he did it. Why did he just take the car and then just dump it off to wherever he needs to be next or send it somewhere where they think he's going somewhere else? I don't know, but I do agree with that. Yeah. But yeah, this is really my big question. It's just the process of Mm -hmm. switching because we see at the end of this film or near the end of this movie is he's quit his job. He's now taking on a new job as an insurance broker and we've potentially met his new mark. So I'm wondering between the murders in the beginning of the movie, we go to one year later and Mm -hmm. whole time I kept asking myself, I'm like, did he really marry Susan in this quick amount of time? Because we find out that Susan lost her husband just a year ago also. So I was like, A, did he murder Susan's husband? Ah, right. Sure. And then B, did he already meet Susan before he murdered his current family? And then he was into play about marrying her? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Susan's played by Shelley Hack, very attractive woman. And somehow Jerry woos her in a short amount of time and marries her. Because I wanted to know how long they were married. It's like, have they just been married for like two months maybe? Right. Because she's got to get over a death. And she meets this guy. And the turnaround from turnaround falling in love is three, four months? I don't know. Valid questions. You think about how does this all work? You're right. How does the whole process work? But there's clearly crossover, right? We know that. When he's still with one family as the stepfather. 
and he decides that he's done with that family for whatever reason. He already is in the midst of planning his next move into a new family. So we know that he quits his job, doesn't tell his current family that, he just quits his job, but pretends to still go to that job. And he's been spending that time looking at a new town, a new house, making a new relationship. Because we do see that towards the end of the film is he's assuming the identity of Bill Hodgkins, his third identity that we know of. And he's now researching a new area to live in and he's renting a new house and then goes to the neighbor whom is a single mother Mm -hmm. and he is flirting with her. And we're like, holy crap. So that's pretty convenient that he chose a house right next to someone that was a single mother. It's like he did a lot of planning, obviously, and put some forethought into this and... There's that crossover, obviously, where he's living a double life. He's leading a double life. So it's a lot of details that he's keeping track of. But you're right. So the thing is then, let's say as Bill Hodgkins, would he attempt to pursue this relationship and get engaged with this relationship with this other woman and get married to her as soon as possible or whatnot? But looking backward, you're correct. This relationship with Susan, which is most of the story we're following in this film, it had to have happened very quickly. Right. No question about it. And I think, too, where I think Jerry made a mistake was I don't think I would have pursued someone that had an older child just because Mm -hmm. you were going to have this friction. It would have been easier to win over a younger kid, which I think in the second one that, yeah, Jonathan Brandis is maybe 13 or 12 in the the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why, besides the fact that it's Shelly Hack why you would go after that thinking you're going to sway a a teenager over to you to make the perfect family. You're just asking for trouble. They're a teenager. They can't help it. That's the way we were. That's the way my kids are going to be when they're teenagers. It's just, it just is what it is. Yeah. I hear you. Uh, but good stuff. Yeah. The timing of everything and the relationships that he had to engage in and, and, uh, everything happens very quickly. So good point. So I brought this up earlier. We know that uh, Jerry Blake, a.k.a. Henry Morrison, a.k.a. Bill Hodgkins, must have had a traumatic or disruptive childhood. We know he had a strict upbringing that's revealed. Uh, He's a man of tradition and of family values. He values the family above everything else. But do we really know why he is the way he is? Do we need to know is the question, Bill Bant. You know, it's funny. We always say we want that information, I didn't. I didn't need to see flashbacks of him as a kid getting locked in the closet or whatever was going on. It was fine. I agree. I agree. I would have liked to have known, would it have fed the story more, enhanced the story more, made it richer, fuller? I don't know, necessarily. It probably it just wasn't necessary for this type of film. I don't think that was the intention. It went from psychological slasher, this is in the research, Excuse me, it went from like a psychological horror film to a slasher film. It kind of right. it went through a little bit of a transition. So in the spirit of a slasher film, you just don't really need that type of backstory for the killer versus if it were to be a real psychological drama slash horror, then maybe you throw in a little more backstory. But interestingly enough, I had asked that question or written it down, and then I did come across this in the research that the first draft of the screenplay featured flashbacks, which helped explain Jerry Blake's abused childhood that was instrumental in his becoming a killer. Yeah, I didn't need to see it because it's probably the same 
crap flashbacks we've seen in hundreds of other movies with kids and their abusive. Um, like they weren't going to do anything different or groundbreaking. You know he's mentally unhinged. Right. I don't need to see why. If that's going to take away from Terry O'Quinn scenes, no thanks. Good call. Good point. I've got a couple quick ones left here. Do you have anything else for additional thoughts or questions? No, I'm good. Hey, man, we know that Terry O'Quinn is playing this character with a new identity and he's married into this new family. And it's made clear in the film that his new wife, Susan, does not know much, if anything, about his past. And it makes you think, how long would you go being committed to someone, being in a committed relationship with someone and barely knowing anything about their past? That's a good question. Like, what kind of information do you want to know, though? Because I think, I mean, even with my wife, I mean, we've been married 14 years. But, I'm, you know, I still learn new stuff. And she learns new stuff about me because if, sure. you, God, if you dump everything in the beginning, there's not much to talk about from that point <laughs> on. I would find it odd if I never met the family or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I guess it would just depend on the circumstances. Or just if I asked personal questions and I just wasn't getting any kind of answers. Yeah, then I would find that kind of weird. But I don't know how much digging Susan's really been doing. I mean, she married him. Right. But that's got to be weird, too. They had, what, they had like a big thing. wedding like, and it was all brideside. Because I've been in relationships with people that, uh, that, with girls that really want to know about my history, my past, what has shaped me, you know, whether it be previous relationships, parents, siblings, it could be travels, it could be life experiences, whatever. They want to know everything about me that has made me who I am versus just taking me as who I am in the moment at the present. And I've had, yeah, again, relationships with other girls that don't give a damn and they just love me for who I am today. So yeah, the question is how much information is necessary? And then you think about it too. It's like, you're not going to reveal all your deep, dark secrets right in the beginning, of course. You live a full life after X amount of years. It's impossible to, to remember much more, share all of those experiences with somebody. So you always find out new things about somebody. Some people may say it's a good idea to to make the person fall in love with you first and then reveal your deep, dark shit. Right. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's too late. You're in love with me. You're going to have to forgive my dark past yeah. now. <laughs> Thanks. So I wanted to say this lastly, uh, as far as an additional thought. I had mentioned earlier in my earliest memories that I would remember more of this film upon revisiting it, that it would all come back to me. And none of it did. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I'm going, I'm going, wait a minute. I watched this a ton as a kid because uh, it was on all the time on cable. And that's why I'm saying, well, maybe it was Stepfather 2 that I watched. So now I got to go revisit that one. But regardless, I realized maybe the reason why I watched it so much as a kid is because probably as a young teenage boy, I probably had a huge crush on Jill Sholin. She's a pretty girl. And uh, that's why I kept watching it. But more than that, it, it's probably the mystery of it. Like we talk about the kind of the questions you have regarding like, how is this guy getting away with this and what's going to happen to him and what's going to trigger him? What's going to set him off? How is it all going to come to a head, et cetera? But yeah, still trying to figure out what drew me to this film and why I just kept watching it. It might have been just because it was on. And what else are you doing at three in the morning? That is another answer to the question, because that is a fact of the matter is that and this has been brought up to another podcast. You know, we talk about the nostalgia. And it was the 80s, right? This is another aspect of the 80s is there was just a limited amount of programming. TV, you only had a certain amount of channels. Cable was new. We had HBO was new. There was only a certain amount of movies that were being broadcast. So you took what you got. So 
if Star Wars was on multiple times a day and that was your option, that's what you would watch. It was a movie. It was entertainment. And if it was The Stepfather, when you turn the TV on, well, it was either that or the news or the sports. And if you weren't into that, then you just watch that movie again because you knew there probably was a part that you might like and that was coming up in a few minutes. You just stick it out. That's the only choice you had. Limited choices. Very limited. All right, time to move on to our ratings. So on a scale of one to five kitchen knives, what do you give the stepfather? I'm giving the stepfather three kitchen knives. You know what? It's good. It's not, like I said, not blow your hair back great. It's good. It's above average. Terry O'Quinn is awesome. He's the reason to watch the movie. His performance is spot on. He's creepy. And you always are curious as to what is going on behind the eyes. The opening and the finale are super solid and a lot of fun. There's some solid filmmaking within those scenes. I was engaged the entire time, always wondering, you know, will he get away with it? But outside of Terry O'Quinn, you know, almost everything else is pretty straightforward storytelling, straightforward average. But I'll confidently say it's an easy, fun watch for an 80s horror film. And that's all I got. Three kitchen knives for me. How about you, Bill Bant? Surprise, surprise. We match again. Yeah, I got three kitchen knives also. It's a very well-made movie. Certainly give that. Directing's good. The acting is good. Yeah, the writing has a little bit to be desired. But um, just having a character and what's going on behind the scenes, and it's not your typical slasher where it's a hockey mask or it's someone in your dreams or some indestructible killer. This is a nice change of pace. It's a cult movie. If you haven't seen it or never even heard of it until now, I would say check it out. I don't even think you need to watch the sequels. I would just stick with this one. So yeah, three kitchen knives for me. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. For our next episode, we will be discussing Blowout, starring John Travolta, Nancy Allen, and John Lithgow. We hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. Next time, Jim, call before you stop by. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.